morning, Grace Point. Good afternoon, good evening, uh, wherever you are in the world. We are so glad you're with us, especially if you're here for the very first time. Just so thrilled you've joined us. Today is our final actual teaching in this series, What is Progressive Christianity? Um, we have covered a lot of ground in this series and very little, to like 0% controversial in the world. Um, and we're going to keep coming back to this from time to time. Every year we try to do a series that kind of reminds us about what it means um, to say that we're both progressive and Christian. Um, so next week we'll wrap the series up and I'm going to just be responding to questions. So if you have questions, feel free to send them in, josh at gracepoint.net. Gracepoint has an E on the end. And uh, if you get those in by Thursday, I'll do my best to respond to them um, in the teaching time next week. So I'm really excited about that. Today, as we, as we sort of wrap up our overview, I want to talk about the way progressive Christianity might approach eschatology. Um, has anybody raised your hand if you've ever heard that word before? Um, eschatology, it's, it, it's not really a familiar word. It's kind of uh, clunky and it's, it's, it's a theological term and it can be a little bit imposing um, so let me just unpack what it means really quick. Eschatology, etymologically, it's made up of two Greek words. The first word is eschatos, which means last, and then ology, which means the study of, right, like biology. Um, eschatology, then, is the study of last things. It's an area of conversation within theology that focuses on what some people call the end times, uh, the ultimate fate of human beings in the world, uh, and often it gets uh, talked about as uh, part of the second coming of Jesus. Now, for me growing up, this was a central, if not the central focus of our faith. I mean, we, we, we knew that we could die uh, if, if we were to die tonight. That was a big question, right? We talked about that. But the equally imposing question for us was, are you ready for Jesus to come back? Like, if Jesus comes back today, now, in this moment, um, are you ready to go with Jesus? And I've got to tell you, um, that, that didn't seem like neither option, dying tonight or going with Jesus, neither one of those seemed safe. Neither one of those seemed like a, a good option. So I can remember as a kid just hoping, hoping, hoping. People kept saying, Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime. And I was going, please, no, please, no. I, I just, I was scared of the idea. Um, we would read the Bible and the newspaper for clues as to when the day might be. We knew we couldn't really know for sure, but we thought maybe we could get kind of close to it. We, we just really believed it was going to happen at any point in time. At any moment, the trumpet could sound. And as a kid, it felt like being under constant threat, impossible to relax. Um, I, I felt sure, so sure during my middle school years that Jesus would come back at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. I did not understand time zones, but I just believed like, and so at, the, at Christmas break every year, I would try to convert as many of my friends as possible just in case so they wouldn't be left behind. It's an area of theology that I believe um, as I've continued to grow and learn, I believe it's an area of theology that is totally misunderstood, and it rests on a reading of scripture that is not contextual. What I mean is it sort of it, it is the ultimate kind of theology doctrine that has cherry-picked the entire Bible that doesn't really um, deal with the context. They just take random scriptures that seem to point to something that they believe is in the future that fits with the narrative, and it really isn't ultimately um, a, a way of reading the Bible, I think, that takes the Bible really, really seriously as um, these documents written in context and that context matters. Um, I love this quote from Fred Craddock, the great preacher. He said, many people are obsessed with the second coming of Jesus because deep down they were really disappointed in the first one. Many people are obsessed with the second coming because deep down, even if they want to admit it, they were really, really disappointed in the first one. Is that true? I mean, since I've 
was old enough to remember, I've heard people say things like the first time Jesus came like a lamb, but he's coming back like a lion. Some people even lick their chops at the prospect of this idea that Jesus coming, is coming back to settle a score. Like, like yeah, he came the first time and we were really mean to him and he's going to come back. And this time he's getting all that stuff about loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute, all that stuff, that stuff's out the window. And Jesus is coming back ready for a fight. Years ago, there was one pastor who infamously said, in Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg and a sword in his hand and a commitment to make someone bleed. That is the guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Well, here's the problem. I, I of course, vehemently disagree with that. And here's part of the reason why. Um, that Essentially, that view says that what Jesus came, how Jesus came into the world uh, in the first century was in some way deficient. And now Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus comes back, Jesus is going to be so angry and he, he's going to be so violent and so vindictive that we can't, and, and for some Christians, this is a hopeful message. This is exciting. We've, we've tried to be good our whole lives. Now Jesus is going to come and get revenge on for, for everything that's ever happened. Um, here's the problem with that version of Jesus, this whole lion he was the lamb and now he's the lion ready to attack. Um, it actually doesn't pay close attention to the text. Notice this line from Revelation uh, chapter five. Um, and there's a whole uh, sort of context of trying to, they're trying to figure out who could open these seals. And we're not gonna get into that this morning, but the, the writer of Revelation is deeply um, uh, concerned that nobody's worthy to do this job. And he's weeping. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, the descendant of David, has emerged victorious so that he could open the scroll and its seven seals. Then in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. Here's what we miss. Revelation isn't saying that Jesus was a lion or was a lamb and is going to be a lion. What Revelation is arguing is that the, tr the true lion-ness, I guess, is the lamb. The lion is a slain lamb. In Revelation, Jesus hasn't changed, right? What I think the writer's getting at is that his commitment to nonviolence, even in the face of his own execution, his refusal to take the way of self-preservation when the chips were down, he embodied a kind of courage that in its most awful forms, violence just can't embody. Because it doesn't take courage to pull out a sword and start hacking. I think about this from time to time when I'm in a store or a restaurant, and this happens more and more, um, and somebody walks in and uh, they're carrying a gun on their hip for all to see, right? They've got a holster and they've got a gun, and they're, they're, they're kind of walking around with it. I never look at that and say, wow, that is a person of courage. Um, I, I usually think, wow, they must be really afraid and insecure to feel the need to do that, to feel the need to carry around a, a weapon of death all the time for all to see. Violence, beating up your enemy, isn't courageous. It's actually the opposite. It takes great courage to, to be nailed to a cross. It takes great courage to pray for your executors, Father, forgive them. It takes great courage to not just match eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And yet we see that in Jesus. And in Jesus, the lamb that was slain, we see embodied the courage of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so I, I wanted to just sort of dispel that myth right away that Jesus is somehow um, 
the, the first, the way Jesus was, was a mistake. And then there's violence coming at the end. I, I don't think that's even a close to a good reading of the Bible. With all that said, um, when we look at the writings in the New Testament, there is a recurring theme that the eschaton, which is just a way of saying the end, eschatology, eschaton, that the end is going to happen at any moment. It, that's, that seems to be what they thought. Um, both Paul and the early Christian community, and even in the Gospels, in their writings, it seems like they believed that during their lifetime, the end would come. Um, so they would have said, we're living in maybe the end times. Uh, I want to read, so the, the first, one of the texts people draw from, it's in Mark 13, Matthew 24, it also pops up in Luke, where they think Jesus is predicting the end, what the end will be like. And so there are 37 verses, I think, to this chapter. I know that's really long, but I want to read it. Um, just as a way of giving us sort of an understanding as we, as we keep going, where this theology comes from and sort of how it gets, gets brought into the world. So in Matthew 13, Mark 13, this is uh, called the little apocalypse because the book of Revelation is the big apocalypse. So Mark has a little apocalypse. And in Mark 13, uh, this is during Holy Week, um, on Tuesday, I believe, of Holy Week. And so Jesus is, is moving toward his uh, crucifixion. As he, Jesus came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what, uh, what large stones and what large buildings? Then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, so just to give you an understanding of these, like, the disciples are interested in how big these stones are. Um, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus he records that the stones for the temple, and he was known to inflate numbers, um, were 68 feet long, nine feet high, and eight feet wide. Now, what's interesting, archaeologists have actually discovered a stone uh, from the temple area that is 40 feet long, 10 feet high, and 14 feet wide with an estimated weight of 500 tons. So that's just one stone. And so they're, the disciples are marveling at this structure and how big it is and how big the stones that comprise it are. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to tell you something. Not one stone will be left on another. This whole thing is going to come down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked privately, tell us when this will be and when, what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished. So Jesus is saying the temple's coming down and they're like, okay, how do we know? How do we know when that's about to happen? Jesus said to them, uh, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware, they will hand you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you will say, but whatever, um, whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you who will speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will be against brother, betray brother to death, and father against child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Um, now, just let's stop and see how we're doing right there, <laughs> right? So Jesus is saying, hey, here's how you're going to know. There's going to be wars. There are going to be all sorts of people. When he says, coming in my name, think of this, people claiming to be the Christ, people claiming to be the Messiah, the ones who um, would be leading the people to find freedom. When you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, that's a parenthetical comment. And this sacri de desolating sacrilege is first referenced in the book of Daniel about something that happened in the 160s. Um, 
Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Then the one on the housetop must not go down and enter the house to take anything away. Let the one in the field not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it might not be in winter. For in those days there will be suffering, such as not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now. Uh, no, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the very elect. But be alert, I have already told you everything. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send uh, the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of, and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. I'm going to stop right there. So Jesus is saying, here's what's going to happen. False messiahs, false Christs. Um, there's, there's going to be all sorts of even almost as if earth itself is crying out in pain. And when that happens, Jesus says, the sign of the Son of Man coming on the clouds will be seen. And of course, this is all language from the book of Daniel. Um, here's what I want to say about that. I, I'm not going to go verse by verse and break all that down. I just want to say this. The first Christians believed they were living in the end times. And they, I think they were right. They believed the end would come in their lifetime. And I believe they were right. Because they weren't talking about the end of the world. Um, that, that wasn't really even a category for them. The end of the world was if all this just goes away. Um, they were talking about the end of an age, the end of the age. Listen to how Matthew phrases this exact same conversation with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew 24, when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They aren't asking about the end of the world. They're operating out of an understanding that they are living in, and to use the Hebrew terms, they're living in olam hazeh. Olam hazeh is a way of saying this world or this age. It's the thing we wake up in every day, right? It's the reality that we exist in. And they were anticipating something called olam haba. And olam haba means the world or the age to come. There are all sorts of perspectives on this among the prophets. Some saw the age to come as a time of peace and unity, a time when swords would be beaten into plowshares, a time when predator and prey would live side by side, not threatening one another nonviolently, a time when all the world would be brought up into this reign of peace and prosperity and goodness. Other prophets warned, and Jesus sort of quotes one there in Mark 13, other prophets warned that the day of the Lord would be darkness and not light that it would be a moment of judgment because the injustice in the land was so great. Um, and Jesus' message, I think, falls in line with this. He called for and enacted the, the first vision. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to make you aware of the peaceable kingdom, the inclusive kingdom, right? But in play, it's not somewhere else. It's not anywhere else. Jesus came and said, essentially, let me give you eyes to see. See this repent, change your mind, begin to think differently about how we interact with one another and, and our enemies in the world. So Jesus called for and enacted this vision of a peaceable kingdom. But in places, and Mark 13 is one of them, he warned that the opposite was possible. If they chose to follow the path of violence, Jesus warned that life as they know it would end. So this coming age, this age to come, it could be good and beautiful. It could bring unity and peace and equity to the world. Or it could bring darkness 
and suffering and loss. And essentially Jesus, it marks Jesus in this case, is giving, so, so Mark wrote around the year 70. Um, and around the year 70, uh, here's what we know. That in the year 66, um, the Jews revolted against the Roman Empire. And so they, they actually were winning for a bit. But what we know is in the year 70, the Romans put down that rebellion. It, they ended it. And when they did that, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And they ripped down the temple block by block, stone by stone. And so the Gospel of Mark was written around either just before or just after, I lean toward just after, the events of 70, where the temple has been destroyed, the city has been destroyed, life as they knew it is completely over, right? And the first Christians saw this event, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, they saw this event as a vindication of Jesus's message, because Jesus called for nonviolent resistance against Rome. So think about this, as they're watching everything fall apart, the first Christians are going, if we had listened to Jesus, if we had chosen the path that would lead toward the nonviolent path, maybe just maybe this wouldn't, this wouldn't have been the thing that happened. But we didn't listen to Jesus. And because we didn't listen to Jesus, now there's suffering. And, and while the sun wasn't blotted out, the, these, this language of the darkness and not light, I mean, it's powerful language to describe the end of the world as they knew it the end of life, the end of an age. And so that line that says, you will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. It's a line from the book of Daniel. And it's to say that, it's not to say that sometime in the future, there's going to be this event where Jesus drops down on a cloud. What it's saying is using language from the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's saying that Jesus was right. And that this sort of, th this moment is vindicating his message. Everything he warned about the way he lived his life, the way he engaged his work and his mission, we're right. That if we had listened, everything could be different. But because we didn't, we are now, um, those who live by the sword, Jesus said, will die by the sword. So here's what I want to say about the Bible and the end times and all of that. The Bible does not predict an end as much as it presents us with options about how we will choose to live in the world. The Bible doesn't predict the end of the world. It's essentially giving us options and telling us where those options will lead us. One of the questions people ask me sometimes is, do you believe Jesus will come back someday? And my response is pretty consistent every time. Uh, I don't think he ever left. So it's hard to come back when you haven't, haven't left. I don't think Jesus, the presence of Jesus has ever been away from us. And I don't think this is really a helpful way of understanding eschatology, um, the end, or how the world might end or how the age might end for us because we are not passively waiting on an outside force to decide what happens to us or for us. We are active participants, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, we're not, this is not being decided from the outside. It's being decided from the inside. You know, the, the poem of Robert Frost, where he gives us this great image. There are two roads that diverge into the woods, one well-worn throughout human history and one that is far less, tra less traveled. One is broad, one is narrow. One that does what comes naturally, the path of violence, the path of self-importance, the path of seeking revenge and getting even at all costs, the path of us versus them. And the other is a path that doesn't come easy. It's a path of nonviolence. It's a path of generosity. It's a path of compassion. It's a path of servanthood. It's a path, I would argue, of being truly and fully human. So in so many ways, we actually are facing an eschatological crisis on this planet. We really are. 
we're facing a crisis that could be end of days level crises. And I'm not talking about asteroids and volcanoes or earthquakes. Those have always existed as potential threats to human life and at times have probably created extinction events um, for species on this planet. But I'm talking about human generated threats to our shared survival as a species. And so I just wanna run down a few of the things that I think um, if we say, gosh, we're, this, this whole way of, we're just waiting around passively for somebody to return to do something. That's not the case. We're actually participating in the world. We're deciding what the next age will look like. This is this age. What is the age to come going to be? Is it gonna be peace and unity and prosperity or is it going to be violence, death and destruction? And I think one of the biggest threats to our shared survival is the proliferation of violence. I, I think violence is humanity's original sin and one which we still haven't repented of. The, the United States, for example, has been in existence for 244 years. And of those years, we have been involved in a war or violence of some sort for 227 years. That means out of our entire existence as a country, we have only had 17 years free of war. And this is not a uniquely American problem. I mean, in some ways, America does it more and uh, uh, better than anybody else. But the reality is this is a human problem. The, the propensity we have to want to just kill our way to peace. This belief that if we just have bigger weapons than the other guy, then we can somehow win and create peace on earth. That's just not how it works, right? We, we own more nuclear weapons than it would take to actually end all life on earth. Like why in the world would we own so many nuclear weapons that it would kill life on earth and then have left some left over? I, I think another potential crisis, eschatological end of the age crisis we face is the climate crisis. We are creeping toward a planetary disaster of our own making. And while lots of people have eyes to the sky looking for planet B, and I love those articles and I love reading about all these exoplanets they're discovering and maybe life could be harbored there. But here's the problem. Um, while, while scientists are looking for a place for humans to go colonize if it's uh, habitable, um, the problem is it really won't matter if we don't learn the lessons that have put this planet in peril. So if we go find a new planet, um, and nobody's on it and it's ours for the taking. The reality is we're just gonna damage and destroy that one too, until we learn the lessons that have put us in this place. Of course, we all know we've been living in a global pandemic. We've been languishing in this for almost a year. And many of us, um, me included, we've had COVID. More than 500,000 people in America have died as a result of COVID. And we are finally seeing progress. We are finally um, seeing many committed to following guidelines because now, and we now have a vaccines that are being distributed. And it seems like we are so close. And yet other people, <coughs> Texas, are going back to normal, not caring about the human cost. The economy trumps humanity for them. And so we have lived through this pandemic and yes, we're making progress and I hope it's almost over. But the reality is, is that at some point, something else is going to come up and we have to ask the question, can we put our sort of self-important, self-ego uh, desires to just do life as normal aside when it comes time? And, and can we live for the common good? Because I think that that is what keeps an eschatological crisis at bay. We also have increasing economic disparity in the world. And study shows that in societies like our, ours here in America, with large gaps between the rich and the poor, both groups are affected adversely. When the gap widens between the rich and the poor, the health of both groups are affected adversely. It's really, really, fat. We, the, the, we are so connected that we don't even realize it. We are so deeply interconnected. Our existence depends on one another in ways we can't imagine. 
I think misogyny, patriarchy, homophobia, and xenophobia are also threats, um, eschatological threats to us. It's 2021, and we still have so far to go. And unity, ultimately, that vision of a, a world at peace and justice and equity and prosperity, that world is not possible until we face the very real issues of prejudice and biases that plague our world. Right? Lion cannot lie down with lamb until we actually deal with the issues that are preventing that from happening, right? We, we cannot say, well, the white supremacists and then their victims lie down south. I said, no, 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 no. There has to be truth told about that. There has to be repentance around that. There's so much work to do. And while I long for a world of unity, we're not going to get there by ignoring the very real issues that have plagued this country since before our inception. And I'm going to say white supremacy and white Christian nationalism specifically. I mean, race, we know this racism isn't in America. It's our country's original sin. And over the past four or five years, um, it, it seems white supremacists and specifically white Christian nationalists have been violently asserting themselves because they've been getting the message that they have uh, friends in Washington. January 6th was an all too frightening reminder that we have way, way farther to go than any of us would like to pretend. I think all of these things present a real threat to our shared life, not just in America, but to our shared life on this planet. And, and I know it all sounds pretty heavy, and it's the, but I actually think it's the reality of the situation. But I refuse. I absolutely refuse to give in to despair. I, I refuse to give in to the belief that we are just doomed and there's no way to solve these, these issues that we face. I refuse to believe that. As a progressive Christian, I am eschatologically hopeful. Try saying that five times fast. I am eschatologically hopeful. Here's what that means. I do believe that a world of peace and justice is possible. I will spend the rest of my life, I hope, advocating for, working for, trying to bring into, trying to embody that world as best I can. The solution to so many of these threats that we face is already present within us. In, in the event of an asteroid, we'll just call Bruce Willis. Um, and if you weren't uh, around in the 90s, you probably don't get that reference. Um, but one of the reasons I'm hopeful is because the Jesus movement began with a group of people who had very little in common. I mean, if you look at the group of Jesus disciples, you have fishermen and tax collectors, right? You have people who were the tax collectors had been known to um, uh, overcharge the fishermen, right? The, the fishermen struggled to make it because of tax collectors. And Jesus has zealots people who are advocating violent resistance and Jesus movement is nonviolent. And we see all of these interesting personalities come together and, and they had little in common, but they came together and they lived differently. They created a different kind of community. They lived as if the kingdom was already present because it was. Now hear this, they lived because the kingdom, they lived as if the kingdom were already on earth as it is in heaven, because as they lived, they were enacting it. We do not have to wait for something to fall out of the sky. We can make choices now that choose to live as if the kingdom were already here on earth as it is in heaven. Because when we live in those ways, the kingdom is already here on earth as it is in heaven. That whole, I'm not going to do anything because it's all almost over anyway, approach is self-fulfilling prophecy. I've heard it my whole life. Like there's no, no use to get really tied to anything because Jesus is going to come back at any moment and take us all away. Right? That, that do nothing because it's almost over. It's, it's a self-fulfilling uh, self prophecy. 
And we don't have to take that approach. What if Christians decided to make the work for justice? And I'm talking economic justice, climate justice, healthcare justice, equity. What if we made that central to what it means to be Christian? Because what we've been talking about um, throughout so many of these sermons in this series is that there is no such thing as a gospel that isn't social. There is no such thing as good news that doesn't affect how we actually live in the world. There is no good news if it doesn't deal with hungry bellies and, and uh, people who are experiencing homelessness. There is no good news if it doesn't deal with injustice and inequality and a lack of equity in the world. Gospel is always social. What if we made that central for us to what it means to be Christian so that in our community, how we live with one another, we are already living as if the kingdom were here because it already is. What if we took seriously Jesus' call that said, seek first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness. By the way, righteousness literally means justice. Seek God's kingdom, God's way of ordering the world. Inclusive, expansive, generous, and pursue God's justice because God cares about justice in the world. So the question, are we living in the end times today? I, I was doing a little research online. I read that the bulletin of the atomic scientist says on the doomsday clock, you are aware of the doomsday clock that's sort of ticking down. So the point of no return for humanity, uh, they say that the doomsday clock is a hundred seconds till midnight, less than two minutes till midnight. And of course, midnight is very, very bad. And this clock represents these human the reality of human generated threats to our existence. So not exterior things that might come from space or whatever, but just the things we do on this planet right now that threaten our existence. 100 seconds to midnight, we are teetering on the brink of some really bad stuff. Are we living in the end times? Only if we decide to be. We also could be living in a time of opportunity, a time of courage, in a time of resolve as we rise to meet these challenges together. These words from Martin Luther um, always come back to me in these discussions. He said, even if I knew that the world would go to pieces tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree, <laughs> right? Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would just go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree today. Grace point, in the face of all of these challenges, may we plant our apple trees not only as individuals, but as a community. May we have such relentless hope for the future that we refuse to write off this world in this life. We refuse to write off this planet. We refuse to write off the fact that all oh, injustice is just going to exist. We can actually, what if we begin to live right now as if the kingdom were here because it already is. And may we engage all the real opportunities around us to change the world. May we leverage all of our creativity, all of our resources and all of our energy to bring a better world into being. Are you with me, Grace Point? Because I believe that this is not only possible, but together with, with the Spirit moving us forward, it is not only possible, but it is likely, if we actually engage, that we can make a difference in this world. Amen.